It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen? Seals? The mark? How did the early church understand it all, anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that in the end, he wins. Jesus wins. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. Welcome to the second last week in the book of Revelation. Now, chapter 19, I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own time fully, is this amazing passage where Jesus overcomes the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and all this misuse of political power and military power and false religion and false spirituality, the literal Antichrist himself, overcome, all broken, forever removed, and thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 19 also starts with this incredible worship song celebrating the end of evil, this grand defeat. Now, in the middle of this victory and this cleaning and redemption and worship, we're all faced with the question, who did all this defeating? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. And, and here's where we arrive at one of the most amazing pictures of Jesus in the whole Bible. Revelation 19, 11 reads like this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he wages war and he judges. Now, the first thing about Jesus is he's called Faithful. This is such good news, no matter where you're coming from on a spiritual journey. Jesus never compromises. Jesus has never made a mistake. Jesus has never stumbled, and Jesus also has never fallen. Unlike every move of God in history, unlike every single leader God called in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and throughout all of church history, Jesus is the only one who's been faithful in every single way. And not only consistently faithful, he's also called true. This is also such good news. There's no shadow in Jesus. There's no misunderstanding with Jesus. Jesus never has been, nor will Jesus ever be untrue, insincere, deceitful. He'll never exaggerate. He'll never give into half-truths. He'll never mislead. He'll always include all the facts, and he does not in the end remain silent in the face of injustice. And since he's faithful and true, what's said next about Jesus is correct, just, and needed, even though it makes us feel unbelievably uncomfortable. With justice, he judges and he wages war. This is Jesus, everyone. The Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. The Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers. And then he comes to wage war. See, this brings us back actually to a, to a full understanding of who God is. As we've talked about time and time again in our church, God is not just holy and not just love. He's holy love at the same time. And again, I'm going to say what I've said before. This really matters in our cultural moment and for the church. 
If you're gonna stand in a culture that has hijacked love and reduced it to phrases like love yourself, your authentic self, what you feel is always right or good, then you will in the end make God unholy. You'll live an unholy life and think God's just fine with your sin when he's not. It was David Wells that actually said this that is so needed. He said, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Without God's holiness, you'll gloss over and remove sin and judgment and wrath and in the end, justice. But the opposite is also true. If God is only holy and only truth and only light, then of course there's no hope for salvation, uh, mercy, second chances, there's no connection with God. And that's why it's amazing that God also at the same time is love. So here's the implication to all of this. There's a time of grace now. There's a time of mercy, undeserved love now. God's love is on full display now. There's this moment of welcome home. God, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, took our place through Jesus, allowed us to come home, to be reconciled, to be called child again, to be called friend again, to be family again. Jesus, on Good Friday, took the wrath of God upon himself, so both the justice of God and the mercy of God are fulfilled and expressed. But this window of mercy actually will come to an end. God's holiness still still demands a response to sin. So you'll hear this so many times. Maybe you've thought this before. So many people say, well, God in the Old Testament, I don't know, he seems angry and mean, and I love Jesus. In the New Testament, he's so kind and he's so loving. No, 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 no. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God through the Old and New Testament. So the mercy of God and the judgment of God in the Old Testament are foreshadow of what's going to happen here. I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God's wrath was poured out and also some were saved. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God, as we've discovered in Revelation, is already being poured out in part, but one day it's going to be fully revealed. Now, in Greek, by the way, there are two words for wrath. The first is where we get our word thermometer from. It's red-hot anger. It's impulsive. It's passionate. It flies off the handle. It just lashes out. That's not God. The second word that's used here means controlled, settled. It's not emotively driven, and it's not driven by ego. It's driven by justice. Jesus is coming to judge and to wage war. Then it says in verse 12, Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. There's no hiding who you are and what you've done. Motives, secrets, all the things ever done and will be done by churches or countries or nations or programs or corporations or people is seen by Jesus. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees through everything. Like fire, everything that's, everything that's false and evil is burned away. All motives are going to be exposed. There, there's no masks with Jesus. There's no hiding from Jesus. And unlike the dragon and the beast that have 10 crowns or false crowns, Jesus has all the crowns. He has full authority. Well, verse 13 gets even a little bit more uncomfortable. Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Now, this is a very powerful image that will bring a lot of discomfort this morning, but it's needed. This image is when Jesus comes to deal with evil in all of its forms, and he's going to conquer all of evil. But the blood on his robe isn't his blood. This is actually taken from Isaiah, 
when God shows up and judges the nations. Listen to Isaiah 63.1. Who is this coming from Edom with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading on the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and it stained my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one would give support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own strength sustained me. I will trample the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured out their blood on the ground. Oh, in other words, here's what's being said. When Jesus returns again, he will be both warrior and redeemer at the same time. When Jesus returns again, he's going to be savior and judge at the same time. And all evil and those who follow evil defined by God will be trampled down and overthrown in judgment. And why does Jesus have the right to do this? Oh, what's his name? It's the word of God. This is a repeat from John's gospel, the very first verse. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is how it reads. Jesus stood before, beside God the Father at creation and at the same time is one with God the Father, which means Jesus is God. So you can't have the DNA of God and not be God for there's only one being with that DNA. When early Jews heard other Jews called Jesus the Son of God, they became enraged because they knew this was a claim to be God. So Jesus is God, and he's going to come, and he's going to judge the nations. And, oh, who's going to come with him? Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of Jesus' mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. There's that reference back to Isaiah. Now, in his mouth, or his mouth, is a sword. Well, what's the sword symbolize? Well, it's the word of God. It's the Bible. It's the scriptures. This has always been his book. This is why Paul in Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God, said, right, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The truth of the word of God slices through everything. Well, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then it reads, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress, there's the connection again, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is the third reference, if you've been doing this whole series with us, to Psalm 2. If you want to understand Jesus, what he has done, what's being done now, what he's going to do, just read Psalm 2. All authority over all nations and all agendas has been given to Jesus by God the Father. And then it's this next verse that we need to hear again and again and again and again. On his robe and on his thigh, He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the ruler of all kings. He is the King of Kings. Jesus is King. Jesus is sovereign. He's above every leader and every person. This is who Jesus really is. Who's who's gonna face Jesus? Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, Napoleon, Hitler, uh, Putin, Trump, Biden, Martin Luther King Jr., Albert Einstein, Abraham Lincoln, Moses, Nelson Mandela, Plato, Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci, Tesla, Ashok of India, Karl Marx, Darwin, Steve Jobs, myself, you, all of us, fill in the blank of every famous person you can imagine and the billions of the rest of us who aren't even known 
And who are we all going to face in the end? One person. Jesus. So Jesus does all this conquering, gets rid of all this evil, which is really comforting and really hope-inspiring and a little discomforting. And as we near the end of the book of Revelation, with, again, this great hope, evil does not win, and this amazing clear vision of who Jesus really is, both holy love, we now arrive at one of the most debated parts of this letter. It revolves around something called the millennium, not the year 2000, just the thousand years. And I just want to say as we get going, don't miss the forest uh, for the trees. This is all given to inspire hope. Here's how it reads. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. This is chapter 20. Having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years was ended. And after that, Satan must be free for a short time. Now I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Jesus for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years had ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. What does this all this mean? Well, okay, there are three major views in theology. I'm just going to say, one of them is called amillennialism, one's called premillennialism, one's called postmillennialism. And again, millennial meaning a thousand years. And how you interpret that thousand years matters. Some say the thousand years is symbolic, representing the whole church age, and others say, no, it's a specific time. Now, personally, where I land is what they call classic premillennialism. That is, Jesus is going to come back. By the way, we all agree on that. But Jesus is going to come back. And as Jesus comes down, all the Christians that are living at that moment are going to go up and meet him in the air. And they're going to come right back down. That's the extent of the rapture. There's no get out for a bit. The dead in Christ, all who have been followers of Jesus, are raised to life. Satan's bound for a thousand years. The Antichrist and false beasts have already been destroyed. You can read that in chapter 19. And Jesus physically reigns on the earth with the church. It could be a literal thousand years, or it could just mean a long time. Then for some reason, in God's sovereignty, Satan is released. There's one more major attempt, one more coup. He loses. The full judgment takes place. And then the new heavens and the new earth show up, and all things are made right. That's how I understand the above. But here's what we got to understand together. All three of those positions that I just sort of talked about, and by the way, we described them at the beginning in the series in that little booklet you all got. They're all held by amazing Christians who love Scripture and love God. And actually, all three positions date back to the church fathers. So no matter where you land on this, some of you are like, I don't know. I'm just a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out. Fine. Wherever you land on this, here's what we all need to hear today. A friend of mine simply said this. There are three things out of this part that we all got to remember. One, the best is yet to come. No matter where you and how you interpret this, the best is yet to come. We can all say amen to that. 
Two, this is really important, especially again this week as we're dealing with war in Ukraine and, and, and Russia and the, just, oh, the future is not up for grabs. It belongs to Jesus. Things aren't spinning out of control. It belongs to Jesus. And the third thing that's amazing is the future is not in our hands. If you notice, all through the book of Revelation, it finally breaks in from the outside. In other words, the good news is Satan doesn't have the last say, and humans don't have the last say, and nature doesn't have the last say. Jesus has the last say. So I hope that's hope-giving to you and hope-inspiring. And then we get to this amazing, amazing part. After Satan's last attempt, however that goes down, he finally gets judged. I don't know if you've thought about Satan's judgment, probably not thought about it a lot this week, but let me just read this little section out of Revelation 20.10. And the devil, who deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I I just want you to sit with this this morning. Satan, that beautiful, powerful angel that rebelled against God, and every principality and power and ruler and authority and dominion that followed with him, every demon. But not just that, every lie, every deception, every heresy, every evil-inspired thought, every temptation, every act of possession, every act of demonization, every oppression, everything evil, everything anti-God, everything anti-human, everything anti-creation, it's just done. It's gone. There's going to be a day where there's going to be no more spiritual conflict. I just want you to hear that today. I want you to sit with that today. There's going to come a day where we're no longer going to have to put on spiritual armor ever again. There's a day where we're never going to have to say, in Jesus' name, leave. There's going to be a day that you're never going to be tempted to sin ever again. It's all going to be gone. I mean, isn't that good news? And by the way, this is not wishful thinking. This is guaranteed. This is going down. Okay, so we have this really powerful, hope-inspiring image that Satan's thrown down and the beasts are thrown down and the false prophets thrown down and Jesus in all of his gloriousness is shown and we know who wins history and we're like, yeah. And then just before we get to the really good part, which is next week, the implications of eternity Come right home. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. This is called the great white throne. This is the last judgment. Now, the throne of God is gleaming white. God's glory, God's grandeur, his purity. There's no shadow in him. He's not like us. There's no darkness and light. This is not yin and yang. He's holy. Who's seated on the white throne? Well, God the Father is the great judge, but he uses Jesus to judge the nations. I mean, this is what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, with all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Jesus. And he will separate the people one from another, like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And it also says the sky and earth fled from his presence. In other words, again, in the revelation of God through Jesus at the end, the very glory of God and the grandeur of God 
The literal natural universe flees away. There's nowhere to hide. The end has come. The time of mercy is over. And now all will give an account. It says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Oh, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in these two books. These are, you could call them the book of deeds. And the dead are judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. Now, did you notice there's two books? There's one for unbelievers, those who do not know Jesus Christ, and one for believers who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the book of the Lamb. Now, I just want you to sit with this again today. There's no place to hide in this moment. No amount of talk is going to get you out of this moment. There's no amount of, you can't bribe God out of this moment. You can't avoid the moment. You can't remove the uh, uh, moment. Like, you are just, I'm, we're just going to be there. Judged and judge. This was taught, by the way, in the early church time and time again. It's all through the New Testament. Romans 2.16. Just, just listen to these verses. Just let them sit there. This will take place on the day when God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Or 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And, and again, Revelation 20.13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, some of you are going, hold on a sec, John. This seems to be saying that every human being is going to face Jesus, okay. But actually, I'm judged by my deeds. So is this saying that actually if I'm good and kind and nice and Christian or fill in the blank, is there some massive eternal scale where if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then, I, then I'm in his good books and I get in? No, 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 n- never. We are never saved by our own activity. That's fundamentally Babel last week, religion last week. Remember, someone else has to break in and save us. What's the gospel? Ephesians 2.18, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Who do you have faith in? Informed trust in, oh, right, in Jesus and his work. This is never from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one gets to be prideful or boast. So salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through his work alone. But faith is revealed by the activity in your life. So the first book is where unbelievers are judged. Those that did not put their trust in Jesus Christ will not, on this day, have an advocate to be spared. Jesus is the great high priest who stands in the gap. Jesus is the Lamb of God that took our place and right takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is called Savior. He's called the only door. He's the only way. And so if you don't have Jesus as Savior, and you don't have Jesus' covering, and you don't have Jesus' prayer life, and you don't have his work on the cross covering you, then you're just left with you. All your good deeds will never be enough because your sin has not been covered, removed, forgiven. And remember, the Bible's very clear. The smallest sin is an assault against the DNA of the Creator. God isn't just offended by murder because he's a life-giving God. It assaults him and fill in all the other sins, right? So 
If you don't have the covering of Jesus on judgment day and you're not in the Lamb's book of life, the judge will talk to you just with no covering. Now, there's those who have the Lamb's book of life, those that did know Jesus, and they're saved by mercy and grace. And this includes everyone who's had a personal relationship with Jesus. This is going to be the most amazing homecoming. The day of judgment for Christians is going to be utter celebration because you're going to finally see the one you love. But we're judged too. But it's not salvific. It's not salvation-oriented. In this day, God is going to test all we did for him. It's summarized like this in 1 Corinthians 1.12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If it's all burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved even though as one escaping through the flames. So here's what we know. Historians talk about how they used to test gold and they put it in this, in this high intense fire and all the impurities would burn away and what was left was the pure gold. On judgment day for us as Christians, God is going to take his judgment and literally everything we've done in our life is gonna be tested. And those things that we did for God with right motive will last. That's like the gold and the silver and the costly stones. Those things we did for God and with God and connected to God, and we did it for the motive of God, man, that's going to produce eternal reward. But all the things we did, even good things, even things done in the name of Jesus that were done for fame or reputation, or we did it out of spite or pride, it's going to burn. Now, I don't know what the reward is, but what I do know is the reward will be amazing. My suspicion is, even in that moment where all of us receive some reward, When we see Jesus, we're going to be so blown away, so excited, so in love, we're going to want to just give all the reward back. But what we all need to understand is judgment is coming in two directions. Well, after the books are read and the judge pronounces sentence, it reads like this in Revelation 20.14. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire, And the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Like I shared two weeks ago, some people think fire represents just utter loss and isolation for eternity. Others say the fire is actually fire. Others say, well, it can't be real fire because Satan and the demonic and they're thrown there and they're not physical. Others say, no, actually, the fire represents annihilation. Satan and any person who's not in the Lamb's Book of Life just cease to exist. It's just gone. Others say it's eternal. Wherever again you land, it's bad. It's eternal in some form, and it's real. The point is that judgment is really coming, and relationally, what we do in this life affects the next. It will be fixed, and it's permanent. The divide is forever. Like we've been discovering week after week after week, there's only two destinies because there's actually only two communities because there's actually only two cities. And hell and the new heavens and the new earth are the landing place for actually who we worship and who we know now. The gap is fixed and there's no way back. Randy Elkhorn in his book, Heaven, wrote these very inspiring and a little bit terrifying words when he said, the best of life on earth 
is a glimpse of heaven. And the worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life, this present life is the closest we will ever get to hell. And for unbelievers, this is the closest they will ever get to heaven. For followers of Jesus, and I know not all of you are, but for some of us who are, we actually do see three really amazing things that are really important for us. Jesus really does win. I know you've heard that in the video for weeks, but he really does win. There is coming a day when evil is literally going to be gone and the new heavens and the new earth are going to be made right. Number two, the best homecoming that you can ever imagine is going to happen and it's going to be epic and it's going to be amazing. But also, this also brings us back to the reality that Jesus is holy love and judgment is coming. Why is that important for us? Well, here's one of the most important things we need to remember, even as we really struggle with this. The final judgment satisfies our inward need for justice in an unjust world. See, God's universe is fair. God is in control. And remember this, God keeps accurate records. And he's going to keep everyone accountable. I love when one person wrote this, and I've said this before in my own words. In this way, whenever I've been wronged, we can give into God's hand any desire to harm or pay back the person who's wronged us knowing that every wrong in the universe will ultimately be paid for. Not overlooked, paid for. Either it will turn out it's been paid by Jesus who died on the cross. If that wrongdoer becomes a Christian, all their stuff, Jesus takes the bullet for, or it will be paid for by the final judgment. See, this brings so much into focus. God does not let anything bad slide. He doesn't dismiss anything. He doesn't go, well, it's not that bad. He actually has the highest standard when it comes to sin. And so, when we talk about, and we're going to in a few weeks at Easter, that Jesus had all the sin of the world placed on him, he really did. When we talk about how God, because he's love, poured out our just what we deserve on his son, what that does is, it secures justice because, again, either Jesus took the wrath that that person deserves that hurt you, or in the end, they'll be held accountable. But someone pays the penalty for the act, which, by the way, should also bring unbelievable worship today and praise that God would have such mercy on us because we've all messed up big time ourselves, right, that Jesus would do this for us. Remember, without the judgment of Jesus, the Christian faith is weak and actually doesn't resolve the question of evil and needed justice in this world. If you're a Christian here today, this judgment should change how you live, should change how we live, actually. Here's how Peter wrote it in 1 Peter 1.17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here with reverent, Fear. I, I love this verse. Why? Because, yeah, if you're a Christian, God is your father. He's Abba. He's dad. Like he, this, is a, this is a name of God which actually allows you to know 
that you belong, that you're a child of God through Jesus. Yet this amazing relationship, which was free and given, actually does not give us a free pass at the end of time. Like we just read, Jesus will judge each Christian's work according to the whole scope and character of their life, whether it was inspired by faith or self-interest. This is not, again, about heaven and hell. This is about worship and stewardship. So just let the scriptures speak to you today. God, through Jesus, is going to judge me, John Thompson, impartially, indiscriminately, penetratingly, absolutely. There's no favoritism. He's just going to do it. And he's going to do it with you. And so the call is, if we know as Christians that justice is going to be served, amen, and Jesus wins, amen, and it's going to be an amazing homecoming, amen, do you live your life differently knowing that though it's not about salvation, God is still going to test you and test your life. And he wants to give you reward. Do you want to sacrifice that? Do you live differently knowing that the end is coming. Let me just say this. If you don't live really every day believing there is an ultimate judgment, Christians will never live a holy life in the, in the time of dragon and beasts because we don't actually think we'll be accountable in the end. But we will be. Here's the last thing. I know a lot of you that hang out with us are not Christians. Or like I always say, maybe you're a seeker or a skeptic or maybe you're Christian culturally or maybe you're from another faith or spiritual. Listen, I know that maybe this part of the Bible is very offensive or shocking, but it's still true. And the invitation by God to you is repent. God is trying to get your attention now. And here's the good news. The time of mercy is now. We're living in this time of grace, this time of undeserved mercy. At this moment, Jesus offers salvation, forgiveness, hope. He guarantees eternal life. But actually, it's not forever. Like I said last week, Jesus offers you physical resurrection, forgiveness, freedom from the fear of death, and actually freedom from the actual penalty, long-term effects of death. Because if you become a Christian, you get physically raised from the dead just like Jesus. He has the ability and the desire to forgive you of all sin, and he can give you the power to overcome Satan. On Judgment Day, either Jesus will be your Savior and your Lord and your brother, and your friend, and your high priest, or you'll face God, and actually there'll be no one to stand in the gap for yourself, for your, for you, because without Jesus' blood, without his access, without his mercy, without his peace, without his covering, like I've shared week after week, you're still left with you. For Christians, Judgment Day is homecoming and also reward, and for those without Christ, it's loss. As God is speaking to you today, don't harden your heart and say, I know better than the Bible, or I don't accept that. God is inviting you into relationship. Repent and trust in Jesus as the time is now and the time is given. So why don't we just pray a few different ways like this. Number one, Lord, thanks that your word is true. Thanks, Jesus, that you're faithful and true. Thanks that you're trustworthy. Thanks that you're going to make all things right. Thanks that actually you are a judge and justice is going to come and nothing is going to be excused or downplayed. Thank you. We need that all the time, but especially in this moment. And for some of us who are Christians, uh, 
inspire us, give us hope because of his homecoming, remind us, uh, encourage us this week when we remember that Satan will be thrown down and it's true. Also, Lord, help us to live a different life. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you, in your kindness and in your gentleness, bring up our judgment so we'd live differently in the church and outside of it, that we will actually give account. And lastly, if you've never, ever embraced Jesus and you want to, you just say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I admit I'm lost and I am a sinner and everything I put my trust in, whether it's religion or spirituality or my own self-worth or my work, whatever, it just won't, won't cut it. I need someone and something to break in from the outside to make me whole. So I, I believe, Jesus, you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I, I do believe you have the right to judge. And actually, I want you to become my friend. And I need your mercy and your covering. So save me from my sin. Save me from death. Save me from actually the penalty I deserve. Thank you for taking the bullet for me. Like, thanks for dying on the cross for me. I believe you died. I do believe you rose from the dead. I do believe you're alive. And I ask you, Jesus, now to cover me. Make me your child. Make me family again. When, when I die on judgment day, I want it to be homecoming, not loss. I accept you as Savior and Lord. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and lead us into all truth so we won't avoid or downplay your needed word. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all sit together. Yeah, amen. Well, next week's the last week. And hey, next week we get to the amazing part of the new heavens and the new earth. Can't wait to see you next week.